You ready? All right, so we've been talking a lot about covenant lately in the past couple of messages, specifically last week when Joe taught. We're going to keep talking about covenant because it's important. It's really important that we have a solid understanding of what a covenant is. For, our, for us to just have a basic understanding of the story arc of the Bible, we got to be familiar with covenants. In fact, if you think about it, we sing songs regularly as part of our singing, part of our worship service. We sing songs about the Lord's faithfulness, about His grace and His mercy, about His kindness, about His promises, about His return someday. And why do we do that? We do it because we serve a God who makes and keeps covenant. Think about what our state would be like, the state of our person, if, if He didn't do that. Like, what if He wasn't a covenant-making God? What if He just made no covenants at all? Well, then, first of all, those promises and things that we sing about wouldn't even exist. They would not even exist. And worse yet, what if He was a covenant-making God, but He wasn't a covenant-keeping God? Well, then we would basically have to live in fear all the time because the things that He said and the things that He has promised, we could not rely on. Think about one of the most easy-to-understand covenants in the Bible, the, the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. He said, I promise never to destroy the earth again with a flood. If the Lord made that covenant, but He was not a covenant-keeping God, then many of us would wake up this morning wondering if this would be the day that the world was going to be destroyed by flood. But He's a covenant-keeping God, and so His promises are reliable. The definition of covenant that we have been working with in the past couple of weeks is this. A covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. A solemn commitment guaranteeing promises. So, the thing we need to know about a covenant as we go through this message today and in the coming weeks is that the covenant is not the promise. The covenant is the guarantee of the promise. It's the commitment. The covenant is the commitment to the promises that have been made. So, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 24 today and maybe a tiny little bit of 25 if we get that far. Um, and the way I want to set this up for those of you who like to take notes is I thought I'd paint this picture of chapter 24 in terms of a type of covenant that many of us are familiar with, and that is a, a marriage covenant. Now, I want to be clear that this sermon isn't about marriage. <laughs> so, if you are not married, if you're single, or if you're 8, 10, 12 years old and marriage is not on your horizon for quite some time, all right, we hope, uh, you can still check in and listen, okay? Because what I, the, the way I'm organizing this is not so much about marriage, but, a, but in terms of like the parts of a wedding. Like even if we're not married or we're very young, we're still probably familiar with what weddings are like. 
and how they're designed and what the major parts of a wedding are. So when we go through this chapter 24 today, we're going to talk about a proposal. We're going to talk about the invitations, the vows, a sacrifice, a token, a meal, and then a part that you might not entirely associate with weddings, but a consequence. So let me say that again, because we don't have it on the screen, and in case you don't have the notes. A proposal, the invitations, the vows, the sacrifice, the token, the meal, and the consequence. And my hope is that this will help you understand chapter 24, but my secondary hope is that the next time you're at a wedding, and we go and, you know, you see the ceremony progress and you hit these different things that it will remind you of our covenant-making God. And you'll remember that the covenant you're seeing at this wedding is a reflection of a God who makes and keeps covenants, okay? So let's get into the first part, and that is the proposal. Now, the proposal is actually not part of our passage today. We're going to consider this as being like Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are presented, through 23, all right, this is kind of the lead up. When people get married, something really important has usually, we hope, happened before the actual event of, of the wedding day, all right? Something hopefully has, has occurred, and that is that they've talked about being married, they've considered what it means to be married, They've thought about the commitment that goes with being married. Being married. My, the day that I proposed to my wife was August 8th, 1996. And we had a dinner arranged in Pittsburgh at a kind of a fancy place. And I wore a sport coat because I had a little box with a ring in it and I wanted to be able to hide it somewhere, not obvious. And uh, I didn't own a sport coat. So I borrowed one from the only person I knew who owned a sport coat. And the material that this sport coat was made out of probably would have been fit to wear at like an outdoor venue at the North Pole. You know what I mean? Like this, this was so heavy, you know, like I felt like I was wearing fur. And that day, August 8th, was about 95 degrees. And I thought I was going to die before I made it to the actual proposal. But I did make it. And she said yes, which I'm very thankful for. But her saying of yes and my decision to even ask her in the first place was preceded by a lot of consideration, all right? Rebecca and I had conversations about marriage. We talked about what we understood marriage to be in the Bible. And while we can't say that we had a complete full understanding of marriage, at age 21 or 22 or whenever that was, we at least had a grasp on what the terms were going to be before I even asked her to be married. So then when we got to our wedding day on November 22nd, 1997, we were making official what we had already agreed and considered to do. In other words, we were confirming what we had already initiated. Our big day, the wedding day, the big day, was really just confirming a covenant that we had started making years before as we got to know one another and we talked about these things and then I asked her to marry me and now here we are actually confirming it. And so 
That's what's happening in the lead up to Exodus 24. Last week, Joe preached the Ten Commandments. In chapter 20, the Lord is initiating this covenant. And then in chapters 21 through 23, He's kind of laying out the practical implications of this law that He's given to His people in order to govern and shape them. He, he covers things like uh, issues of restitution, social justice, uh, Sabbaths and festivals and different events, matters of human relations, and all of that is covered over four chapters, and then in chapter 24, we're finally ready for the big moment. All right, so that's the proposal, that's the lead up, and now we're going to move on to the next thing. We hit cha chapter 24, and most weddings, by the way, I got to say this to those of you who are married, I'm painting this picture of like what weddings are like. I know that not everybody's wedding is like this, okay? Your, your experience may have been a little different. I'm, I'm just kind of embracing the general, generalization here as far as weddings go. But most weddings have invitations that are sent out inviting people to come and witness the covenant. So Exodus 24 verses 1 and 2 starts with an invitation. It says this, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Thanks for being patient with me while I get a drink. Um, so God issues an invitation, and some of you are probably thinking, well, that sounds about right. You know, like when you have a wedding, some people are invited, some people are not, right? And uh, in Exodus 24, we see that this small group out of the entire nation of Israel is invited to come up onto the mountain. It's Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then 70 of the elders, which would have been like the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the rest had to stay away. They were not allowed to come near the Lord. And in this picture of this invitation, we're seeing an example of how covenants that the Lord makes are different than covenants that people make with each other. That's, that's one of the things I, I meant to say earlier, and I kind of skipped over this in my notes, is that I'm using this picture of a wedding as we go through chapter 24, but it's an imperfect picture, and that's okay. It's an imperfect picture because a wedding is a covenant being made between two people who are equals. And the covenant that we're looking at in Exodus 24 is a covenant being made between God and people, and humans are not equal with God, right? We're not equal with God. And so there's going to be some imperfections in this metaphor but as we look at those differences, it's going to help us see more of the character of God. So humans are not equal with God, and He invites people up onto the mountain. But if they did not have express permission to be there, if any one of those people who were not invited up that mountain had chosen to come anyway, they would have been killed. They would have died because it's a miracle that anyone was allowed to be in the presence of God. This invitation to this small group, it's a miracle that they could be in the presence of God, and it was only by His permission. Why? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Joe spoke about uh, God's holiness, and he used as an example 
the sun. The sun is this amazing thing that in many ways gives life, right? Plants need the sun to grow. Those of us who live in western Pennsylvania know very, very well that if we go a long time without the sun, which happens, it affects us, right? We need the sun. But the sun is also something that if we get too close to it, if we actually could go and travel there and get too close to it, it would destroy us because it's this massive flaming ball of gas that gives us wonderful things, but it would kill us because we can't approach it. Well, the marriage covenant isn't like that because the two people who are making the covenant can safely come very close together. But God is making a covenant, and only those who are allowed to be near Him can be near Him. And it's really cool what He's doing here because He's foreshadowing what we're going to see in the coming chapters. Um, actually, in chapter 25, uh, the Lord is going to give Moses some direct, start to give Moses some directions about calling people to build a temple for the Lord's presence with very specific um, details. And that temple had like a section where a lot of people could gather, and then it had a place sort of inside where a smaller group were allowed to be, but then it had this one place called the Holy of Holies where only one person could be in the presence of God. And so this picture of this invitation to the confirming of a covenant on the mountain is a picture of what's coming with the temple, which is just really cool. You've got the people who are far away, you've got the priests and the elders who can come near, and then you've got Moses, who's the only one who can be close. All right, so we looked at the proposal and we looked at the invitations. Now let's look at the vows. V-O-W-S, not vows like the opposite of consonants. Vows, V-O-W-S. Exodus 24, verse 3 and verse 7 says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then verse 7 says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So every wedding I've ever been to, probably every wedding you've been to, has had a a part of it where there's the exchanging of vows. And sometimes the bride and groom write their own vows, and they speak them to each other. Sometimes it follows kind of a more traditional script but I think every wedding, no matter what, which, however that looks, every wedding I've ever been to has a moment where the officiating pastor asks a series of questions, and then the bride and groom are asked to respond with what? I do, right? They respond with, I do. Well, this is the Israelites' I do moment in the confirming of the covenant. And they said, I do. The terms, and, the terms have been presented, initiated in the past couple of chapters. The Lord's commitment to the people of Israel has been so obvious. First of all, in a previous covenant called the Abrahamic covenant, where He promised to Abraham to make His descendants into a nation, and that has happened, right? They, were, they, were made in, they, they became a great nation in the land of Egypt. And then the Lord 
demonstrated his commitment further by remembering that covenant, seeing their, their struggle in Egypt, and rescuing them out of there, parting the waters of the Red Sea. And now he's, com- he's, he's shown his commitment even more by giving them this law. So his commitment is clear. The terms are there. It's all laid out, and the Israelites say, I do. In fact, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, if you know the Old Testament at all, you may have like a little half smile on your face because you know that's not going to last. Think about the kindness of the Lord in this moment. They say, we will be obedient. We'll do everything that you say. We're going to follow this law that you gave us, and that lasts about five minutes, all right? That's an exaggeration. It actually lasts 40 days because Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, but when he comes back down with the law of the Lord, what does he find? They've already broken the first two commandments. They've created a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. So their, their big, we'll be obedient to everything you told us, doesn't last. And none of that ever changes. If you go through the, the story arc of the Old Testament, it's just event after event of the people of Israel turning away from the Lord after something else, and the Lord faithfully bringing them back, and then they turn away, and He brings them back, and they turn away. It goes on and on and on, and none of it was a surprise to the Lord. He knew when He made the covenant that this was going to happen. In fact, last week, Joe taught about, it was so cool, I I think I'll remember this for a long time. He said the law kind of served three purposes. It's a mirror, remember that? And it's a teacher, he had the apple, and it's a coin, and actually the coin was still sitting up here just a moment ago. But um, one of the purposes is that he gives the law to show them their sinfulness. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He knows they're going to break it. He gives them the law and establishes this covenant so they can see their own sinfulness. There is a beautiful story in the Bible that illustrates this, and it's the prophet Hosea. I don't know how familiar you are with the prophet Hosea, But Hosea was a prophet of God, he spoke the words of the Lord, and he was told by the Lord to marry a woman who, to us, has the very unladylike name of Gomer. So Hosea marries Gomer. And the thing in this story is that Gomer was a prostitute. So it would have been crazy for the man of God, instructed by the Lord, to go and marry this woman who is a prostitute. But he does because the Lord tells him to. And Gomer again and again and again runs off from Hosea and commits adultery with many men. And Hosea just keeps 
going after her and bringing her back. And after this has happened many times, Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 says this, and the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, so the Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, even though they keep turning away from the Lord, he's telling Hosea, just like I go after the children of Israel, you go after Gomer. It's a beautiful illustration. The Lord does not break his covenant vows. He does not. And that's another way where we can see that the covenants that the Lord makes are different than the covenants that people make. Because we know, we all know, that covenants between people are often broken. All right, let's move on. The next section is a sacrifice. A sacrifice. I'll explain what I mean, but let's read the Scripture first. This is Exodus 24, verses 4 through 6, and then verse 8. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then in verse 8 it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." We might not think of a sacrifice being part of a wedding, um, but I'm going to tell you here in a little bit how it it is. But if you think about biblical covenants, if you look in the Bible and find biblical example of of covenants, they almost all include some sort of sacrifice. In fact, there's there's a covenant made between Jacob and his father in law, his father in law Laban. They make this covenant. They build kind of like a, like a monument, like a pile of rocks in this one particular place. And the covenant they make is Jacob's going to stay on this side of the, of the pile of rocks. This land is mine. I'm not coming into your land. Laban says, this land over there is mine. I'm not coming into your land. Some of you might like to make that covenant with your in-laws, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> okay, sorry, I thought you'd laugh at that joke more. Um, <laughs> Um, but then they make, as they're making this covenant, they have a sacrifice because biblically covenant is sealed in blood. Now we can, we can read that passage, especially verse eight, when the, when the blood is thrown on the people and we can kind of be like pretty disgusted. Like, thank you, Lord, that weddings these days do not still include blood being thrown on people, right? I'm happy for that. But the significance of that cannot be overstated. The significance of blood being applied to the people cannot be overstated. We're going we're gonna to come back to that later as I'm finishing up the sermon at the end. But where does this show up in our idea of weddings? Well, many weddings include the celebration of communion. Okay? Remember we took communion last week. That communion is the celebrating 
of a sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Why do we do that often at weddings? Not every wedding, but many times it happens at weddings. Everything we have, everything we have, it's true for everyone, but especially as believers in Jesus Christ, everything we have is because of Him. Scripture says that in Him we live and move and have our being. It says that we are His offspring. It says that we love because He first loved us. And for those of us who are believers, I don't think it's a stretch to add to that, that we can make covenants, especially the marriage covenant. We can make that covenant because we have a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that sacrifice with communion. And we're going to come back to that again at the end, but let's move on for now. The next part is a token. So we've had the proposal, we've had the invitations, we had the vows, we talked about sacrifice, and now I'm going to just talk about this briefly because it's pretty obvious. It's a token. And the Scripture says this. This is verse 12 and 13 of chapter 24 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instructions. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. God gives the Israelites, he gives it through the mediator Moses, he gives to the Israelites tablets of stone that Moses brings back to them after 40 days with the Lord. And they have a token, a physical representation of the covenant that the Lord has made with them. Well, I was going to try to take this off, but I can't get it off, actually. This is my ring, okay? If you can't see it from way in the back, I promise I'm wearing a ring. That ring has been on my finger for nearly 24 years. Um, I can only think of a handful of times in that 24 years that I've ever taken this thing off, probably because I was doing something like really disgustingly gross with my hands and didn't want to get it dirty or maybe something dangerous that, you know, would not be a good idea to have a ring on my finger. But other than that, this ring has not left this hand in 24 years. And for those of you who wear one of these, you're probably, I would guess like me, in that it's there all the time. You don't usually think about it, right? It's after 24 years, you know what I mean? Like you don't even notice. It's just there. But it is a token of a commitment that we made together 24 years ago. And when I do think about it, it reminds me of that. Like I, I don't think about this ring, but I love this ring, actually. I love it because I love my wife. And when I think about this ring, when something happens and it comes to mind, I remember the promises that we made. I promise to love her always. I promise to be faithful to her always. I promise to diligently seek the Lord. And that's the reminder, just like they had the tablets of stone as a token of what the Lord was promising, this covenant that He was making with them, so in a wedding we have a token. So God gives them this tablet, and these tablets, and in the coming chapters you're going to see that He gives them an ark of the covenant. He gives them uh, an entire temple 
built to very clear specifications. He gives them in this temple, it's filled with objects that the Lord defines exactly how they should be made. And every single one of them is attributed to some attribute of God, some characteristic of His. And it's a reminder of the covenant promises that the Lord is making with them. So He gives them a token. And then, what is for many of us the favorite part of a wedding, there's a meal, right? So Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11 says this amazing thing. Just try to imagine this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What a miracle that, first of all, they were even allowed to be in the Lord's presence. But then they see this incredibly amazing sight. I read this fantastic commentary when I was preparing for the sermon I don't remember who wrote it. I wish I could tell you. But the, uh, the writer compared this vision that they see of the Lord to two other visions in Scripture. One is in Ezekiel, and one is way at the end in Revelation. So it would have been the apostle John who was reporting it. And in each vision, they see similar things, but they see more of God. So this guy was, in his commentary, was saying that what he believes, and of course we don't know for sure, but... What he believes they were seeing was the Lord sitting on his throne, and they were kind of looking up at him through this sapphire thing, and all they could see of him was his feet. And then Ezekiel, if you can imagine being in that viewpoint, and then just being lifted up higher, Ezekiel sees this vision of the Lord, and now he's on his throne sitting above this expanse. And then when John sees him in Revelation, he sees him from the perspective of heaven. And so as each vision is revealed later, further along in the Bible, the person revealing it or reporting it is seeing more and more of God. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's coming the day where you're going to see him fully. You're going to see him more clearly than even the apostle John saw him in the Revelation. So, they're eating in the presence of God at the making of a covenant. And this may sound ridiculous when you think about the Lord sitting on this sapphire expanse, but the next time you're at a wedding reception and you're waiting for the buffet to start and you're waiting, wondering when the cake's going to be cut, I hope that you will remember that there is coming the day when you will sit at the Lord's table and see Him as He really is. That's what that is a picture of. When we go to a wedding and we have that reception, that is a picture of us eating at the Lord's table someday. And it's true for believers in Jesus. Let's move on to the last section before we wrap it up, and that's the consequence, okay? Now, I want to read this passage. It's not from Exodus 24. We're jumping way ahead to Leviticus chapter 26, and it says this. These are some harsh words. But if you will not listen to me 
and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Those are hard words, but it's only the start. If you look up chapter 26 of Leviticus, it goes on for another 19 verses after that saying all of the things that are going to happen to the people of Israel if they do not keep His commandments. Now, to be sure, the word, the word of the Lord is also clear that there is blessing for them if they keep commandments. There's blessing, there's safety, there's abundance, there's provision, there's fertility. It goes on and on and on if they keep the commandment. But along with that blessing is also the promise of a curse if they don't keep it. Well, I can't remember a wedding where a curse was explicitly stated. I think that would be probably most of our experience, that we haven't seen that at a wedding. But we all know, we all know this because we live in a broken world and we see it around us, that there are consequences in marriages of unfaithfulness, lack of care, uh, self-interest, disinterest, abuse. There are consequences. The Scripture is so clear that the marriage covenant is such a perfect picture, or should be, is intended to be a perfect picture of Christ and His church, that it is no wonder that the enemy desires very strongly to break marriages. And it is sad to say, but true, that the enemy has made headway in this world, hasn't he? Do you remember, do you remember the story we talked about a little bit ago about Hosea and Gomer? Like Gomer, Israel turned away again and again and again from their covenant that they had with the Lord. The Lord knew that, and He still entered covenant, entered into covenant with the people of Israel. And I wonder, would we do that? Like if someone on our wedding days, those of us who are married or those of you who aren't, if, if someday you are married, if someone could come to you and say, your husband or your wife, that this person you intend to make your husband and your wife in this covenant is going to be unfaithful to you again and again and again. If someone would tell us that and we knew it, would we still do it? Would we still enter into the covenant? I don't think that many people would. I could be wrong about that, but I think if we somehow knew for sure that that was going to happen, I don't think many people would. But it's just another thing that shows you that there is no one like our God. 
He knew it for sure, and he still did it. So, we're going to finish up today's sermon by asking one question, and that is, where is Jesus in this passage? We've been talking as we as we go through the book of Exodus, we've, we've talked about getting glimpses of Jesus. And so, where is Jesus in this passage? Well, sheesh, He's all over the place. We could look at lots of things, but I want to look at two things, one related to this idea of consequence, and then the other one I want to go back to the idea of sacrifice, which is probably pretty clear where I'm going with that. But Jesus is the bearer of the curse for breaking the covenant. Think about that. Jesus became the bearer of the curse for breaking the covenant. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Scripture says that while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. We love Him because He first loved us. He made a way in the blood of Jesus for us to be under a new covenant. And even once we've been like ushered into that covenant, we still, like the Israelites, we stray. We stray away at times. And so we deserve consequence. We deserve all of those consequences I read in Leviticus and more. In fact, Jesus not only took purchased our way out of those consequences, but He purchased our way out of eternal separation from God in hell. So, He became that curse for us. So, that's that's the first place that, that Jesus is so obviously in this passage. He is the bearer of that curse. And the second one is going back to this idea of sacrifice. Do you remember when Moses threw the blood on the people? And we said that cannot be, the the significance of that cannot be overstated. Well, Jesus can be seen in this passage in the sprinkling of the blood on the people, all right? It says, Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, and then he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's Exodus 24, 8. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have been saved by faith in Him, you have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Do you remember that last week when Joe taught the message about the initiating of the covenant, we ended with communion? If you were here, we we did it backwards from what we usually do. We put communion at the end. Well, that communion is a celebration of Jesus' blood being shed. And in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, it says this very familiar passage we often read when we take communion. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And it's because of that sacrifice, because of that shed blood of Jesus, that Hebrews 10 19 through 23 is true for believers in Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful to the covenant that He made in His own blood. I'm going to have the band come up. And as they're coming up, I just want you to consider this last thing. Like the people of Israel receiving the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20 through 24, and having it made official by its confirmation on Mount Sinai, that's chapter 24, so we too have a new covenant in Jesus' blood that has been confirmed by who He is and what He accomplished. The new covenant in Jesus' blood was confirmed by His death, by His life, by His death, and by His resurrection. We didn't quite make it to Exodus 25, 1 through 9, which I kind of thought we, we might not. But when you get into that next chapter, you're going to see that the Lord begins this way of uh, establishing His presence with the people. He's going to make a way for His presence to be with them. Um, what does that mean for us? In that new covenant in His blood, He has already made that way. Do you remember when we talked about the temple and there was like this area where most people could be? And then there was an area where just some people could be? And then there's this area where only one person could go? Well, in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, that way has been completely opened. So believe me, and I hope you see it in the chapters to come as we continue through Exodus, that through the blood of Jesus we can really, it's true, friends, we really truly can come before, before Him into His presence, in, into His presence, into the Holy of Holies with confidence. Amen?